Amen. Okay, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Last week was the APOR graduation. We're excited to see the men that graduated. I I didn't get to be here. Uh, I was at kids camp. Uh, But then the week before that was the last time we preached. And so we covered chapter 4 verses 1 through 8. And so we're going to just cover verses 9 through 12 in chapter 4. And then Pastor Nate will pick up next week um, with the rest of chapter 4. And so just to introduce the subject that we're going to talk about, you know, most people understand, you know, this is a Wednesday night crowd, so you guys all know, know what I'm about to say. But, you know, if you're a believer, you're going to have a changed life, right? You, you know that if you're a genuine believer of Jesus Christ, your life is going to be transformed and changed. And that somebody who claims to be a Christian but doesn't have fruits of repentance, doesn't really change in their life, is deceiving themselves. To claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ and have no fruit of repentance, have no life change, radical life change, you're really deceiving yourself. And so that's the, that's the, hall, the, the, the hallmark of Christianity is 2 Corinthians 5.17, which is that, that he who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away and all has been made brand new. That's the hallmark of the Christian faith is that because of the power of the resurrection... Somebody that is dead in their trespasses and sins can be made alive and be given a brand new nature and a new heart, new desires. And that, that's what makes Christianity special. But what's interesting is, and kind of what we're going to cover here in this section, is that these changed people that, that we are, we live in the midst of a culture and uh, uh, amidst the people who are hostile to our belief system. They're hostile to what we believe is true. And that's very common for us. Now, we may not experience it like the early church did. And this church in Thessalonica and other early churches in Ephesus and Corinth and other places that Paul went to visit. In the early church, the persecution was extreme and became physical and violent. And many early Christians were martyred and have continued to be martyred for their faith. But us, we in America, we are kind of like under a reprieve right now. In, in other countries, in third world countries, Christians are being martyred for their faith. But we, it has not reached us yet in, in America. But we are not promised that it will not reach us. And so because we've been changed, because our life is different, we are susceptible to persecution. We're susceptible to people disagreeing with us, not liking our views. Has anybody ever experienced that? Somebody comes up to you and, and you're speaking something about your faith or maybe you're abstaining from something that a group of people are doing that you don't believe is right and godly. And so because of your stance, you may not have even said something. You just stood against something and they, they ridicule you. They, they make fun of you. That, that's a form of, of persecution. And so this section that Paul is dealing with in, in, in verses 9 through 12, he's talking to people that are really living that. To a, a very re, in a very real way. They are being persecuted in their life. And so he's trying to encourage them and remind them that, that because that's your environment, don't live in unchristlike ways in the midst of a hostile world that will bring on even more danger into your life. Don't give them reason to persecute you. They're already persecuting you because of your belief system. That's not going to change. But live in a godly manner. Take care about your life. So this is a very, some very practical things that the Apostle Paul brings out. He talks about working. He's like, you need to work. 
You need to work diligent. You need to work with your hands and work hard. You need to live a quiet, peaceful life. You, you, you need to mind your own business. Paul told the church, mind your business. Work, work out your own affairs. And so he gets real practical because he understands that if they, if they don't, if they're not careful about how they live in the midst of a crooked world, that they can increase and needlessly experience persecution. And so this is kind of what the theme is here. And so I, I, when I was thinking about this subject, you know, sometimes we can feel like, well, you know, I'm not going to be perfect. So, I, I, you know, people just have to cut me some slack. If, if, have anybody, has anybody ever seen this bumper sticker? Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. So sometimes I see that bumper sticker and I'm, I'm driving and I see it. I've seen it multiple times. And I think, so if I cut that person off in traffic, they might flip me off. <laughs> because their bumper sticker says, hey, Christians aren't perfect. <laughs> Just forgiven. So yeah, you got to cut me some slack here. I'm, I'm, I may be mean to you and I may be rude to you and I may not be Christ-like, but I'm still a Christian. I guess, like, that's what that speaks to me. Does that speak that to you? That's how it comes across a little bit. Now, is there truth in there? Yes, Christians are not perfect. We're going to mess up. But it's almost like a built-in excuse. So the Apostle Paul is telling the, the, the early church, and he's telling us, there is no built-in excuse. That if we are believers, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that we are going to progressively become more like Christ. And in the middle, in the midst of a hostile world, it's even more important that we shine our light. That we demonstrate, yeah, we're not gonna, we're not gonna be perfect, but that we consistently demonstrate that who we are based upon what we say is backed up by our life. The way we live on Sunday, the faith we have on Sunday actually works on Monday and Tuesday and through the rest of the week. That we're not just Sunday morning and Wednesday night Christians. We are actually real Christians that when we are at our job, when we're in our life and interacting with brothers and sisters in Christ, with non-believers, when we're interacting with people, we demonstrate the fruits of righteousness that are being developed in our life. And when we do that, that's where our impact grows. That's how our influence for the gospel really grows, is that when people look at us, they think, man, that's really genuine. That's really genuine. You know, nobody could have convinced Estelle that I didn't love her when we were dating. Because there was fruits of righteousness. <laughs> fruits of, there was changed behavior in my life. You know, I acted differently. Didn't matter who I was around. Didn't matter if I liked the person or if we disagreed about whatever. If, if I was around Estelle, everyone knew that Ben and Estelle, we just had goo-goo eyes and like, like, you know, like, like Heath and Tony here. And I'm, I don't know if they're going to be paying attention to the message. You guys focus in here. Um, uh, it's okay if you drift a little bit. It's no big deal. So that was a very big moment. You can write notes to each other. Um, you know, you can pretend you're taking notes on the message. But you really talk about how much you love each other. Um, but no one, no, everyone knew because our life was changed. And so that's what happens. That's the goal. And this is what the Apostle Paul is ultimately trying to get them to see. Now, there are some other issues going on here, too. Another issue is, is that this church in Thessalonica, they had a, a unique thing going on there where they were really anticipating the return of the Lord. And they believed it was really imminent. They believed it was coming right now. And so they were giving up their job. They weren't working. They weren't caring for the everyday issues of their life. And so the Apostle Paul, in this section we're going to cover, he deals with that. And he's like, look, you've got to work with your hands. You don't, have, you don't need to depend on anybody else. 
in, when you're living in the midst of a hostile world, in the midst of outsiders, make sure that you are living in a way that honors God and that you are a hard worker, that you're diligent, that you're not having to depend on anybody else, that you're taking care of yourself, you're doing what you need to do as a follower of Christ. So that's kind of the section. You guys with me? Let's, let's read, let's read uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. It says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly. And to mind your own affairs, mind your own business. And to work with your hands as we instructed you. So that you may walk properly before outsiders. That's the key right here to this section. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So these are the four verses here that we're going to cover. And we're going to go through each section here. And so I just want to ask the question. How should we live while in the view of non-believers? What is the Apostle Paul telling us? He's telling the church there. But he's... His inspired letter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, speaks to us too. So how should we live while in the view of non-believers? There's non-believers watching you. They're watching you on your job. They might be watching you in your family. They may be watching you in the church. They, they watch you many different places. They're watching you in traffic. They're watching you at Walmart. That lady that checks you out at Walmart that you're irritated at, she might be a non-believer and, she, and she's watching you. Right? They, 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 they watch us. And so... How should we live while in the view of non-believers? So the, the first thing I see in this text is that our love for the body of Christ should be evident. This is what he says here. Our love for the body of Christ should be evident. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God. That's a key phrase there. You don't need to be instructed about how to love the brothers and the sisters in Christ. Why? Because you've been taught by God. To love, to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But I urge you brothers, do this more and more. So why is, why is, import, why is it important that we love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? In the, with the outside world looking at us. Why do y'all think that's important? You can talk to me. To be an example. That's a great reason. Yes. Yes, so people can see, they can see in demonstration what God's love looks, what it looks like. Absolutely. Yes. To to convert over? Absolutely, yes. So we we become attractional. The gospel message becomes attractional whenever the outside world looks and when, when they get a peek. Especially when they come into our church doors, when they come into our church and they see, man, what is up with these people? Like they smile at each other and they're loving on each other and everything's all happy and clappy and exciting. And they, they, they're singing these songs and there's peace and there's joy. What is up with this? What's going on? And sometimes non-believers just can't get it. And the reason is, is because their hearts have not been opened by the gospel yet. They're blinded by the God of this age, which is Satan, and they're blinded by their sinful nature but there's something that they see that catches them even in the way that we interact with each other, the way we love, the way we forgive each other. You know, you know I was talking to, to somebody just recently and it was around the subject of forgiveness. 
And this lady was telling me, you know, I'm not sure if she's a follower of Christ. She's just somebody that's in our extended family. And she was talking about how it, it, she, her words were, it is impossible to forgive some things. And she gave an example. And she said, she said, you know, like, for example, if somebody abused your daughter, and she pointed to Reagan, you're never going to forget that. And, you, and that's impossible to forgive that person. And so, now she believes that you can forgive other things, and, but if it's extreme enough, it's impossible to forgive. Because she just heard something about forgiveness and forgiving others that have hurt you and letting it go and doing it because Christ has forgiven you. And so that could be a common idea that people have. There's no way that I can forgive that person because they, because they murdered my loved one or they abused my loved one or they took advantage of me, they robbed from me, they stole from me, they took advantage of me in a business deal. And that's the worldly view. But we know the biblical view is, is that we forgive not based upon other people's deserving of it. Does anybody deserve to be forgive, to be forgiven? Nobody does. We don't, and there's nobody else that does. So forgiveness is not based upon merit. So when the world sees that a believer, and I've seen it, you've seen it over and over again. I've, I've seen, I've seen people that have gone into courtrooms and looked at, at, at murderers, that have killed their family members and they have looked at them and said, I forgive you because I'm a Christian based upon what Christ has done in my life. That speaks something. That this is how we are as believers. That we, we, have, we can walk in forgiveness because of what we've experienced. And that's a love we have for each other. And so this is what the apostle... Yes. That's, that's, that's the grace of God. That's, that's by the mercy of God. That's not, it's not normal. You know, that's not normal for anybody to do that. It's only by the grace of God that He's helped you to do that. So that, that's amazing. And that's, that's what is attractional to the world. Is that somebody can be at peace, even though they've been taken advantage of and abused and hurt genuinely in a very real way, that they can, they can forgive each other. And so, the key phrase in this, the heart of all of this, the reason we can demonstrate love to each other, the reason we can demonstrate love to the outside world is this phrase here. It says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Why? For you yourselves have been taught by God to love. God taught us how to love. How did God teach us to love? Which starts in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. Let's read this section. This is how God taught us to love. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, this is a scripture that I referenced here, the God of this world has blinded their minds, blinded the minds of unbelievers. It's a very key thing that people need to see there um, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so, verse 5 says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let, sh- let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So how has God taught us love? He's shown the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
That's how God demonstrated His love. He demonstrated it through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. And so that's the gospel message is that through Jesus, through the life of Christ, God demonstrated what love is. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's, that's how God said, I'm going to show the world what love looks like. And Jesus is the embodiment of our Heavenly Father. He is the exact representation of God on earth when He was on the earth. And so He demonstrated what love is, what compassion is, what, what it means to, to show mercy and grace and forgiveness. Perfect righteousness looks like. Jesus is God. And so when we want to know how to love each other, where do we look? We look to Jesus. I, I was talking to somebody just recently about their marriage. And they were struggling um, in their marriage with their wife. And so I was, you know, telling them that, you know, it's, it's important. You know, you know, if you're a Christian, you've heard the, the section in, in Ephesians that you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church. I said, and so sometimes husbands can hear that and they think, well, yeah, that's, I know I need to do that. I know I need to do that. And I just encouraged them. Instead of just focusing on that scripture, won't you just go read the Gospel of John? Go read one of the Gospels and look how Jesus loved. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love? Go read, go read the Gospels. What did he do? I mean, he just, he was filled with compassion. He had compassion on people. He was moved with compassion. He had compassion for the sinners. He had compassion for the lost. He had compassion for the sick. So, so when we want to know how to love, we look at Jesus because he demonstrated. And how did he ultimately demonstrate it? By dying on the cross. This is how we're taught by God to love one another. Is that love is self-sacrifice. Love is laying down your life for one another. That's what love is. That's just, this is what it says in 1 John chapter 4, 7-12. through 12. The gospel teaches us to love. And we see this in 1 John. Beloved, let us, speaking to us as brothers and sisters, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Man, that is strong right there. That's like confrontational a little bit, huh? Right? Let's read that again. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So what's the opposite mean? You can't hate and know God. You can't hate your brother. How can you hate your brother and know God and say you know God, right? That's what he's saying there. If you love, if you love, it's because you know God. If if you love with this God kind of love, it's because you know God. Because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. And this is, I love this. This is so good. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction of the wrath of God for our sins. That is the gospel right there. Let's read that again. In this is love. Not that we love God. Not that we we worked up some love for God and pursued Him. That's not what it means to love God. That's not what love is. What love is, is that He loved us and He sent His Son to us. He pursued us 
when we could not pursue Him. He pursued us when we were enemies of the cross, when we were against Him, and we had no way out of our blindness, as it said in Corinthians there. We were spiritually blinded by the God of this age. We were internally blinded by a sinful nature. Doubly blinded. God, God demonstrated love by making sure you heard the gospel. Isn't, isn't that good? That, that's why we preach the gospel. That's why we go into all the world and preach the gospel. Because the gospel breaks through the blindness. The Holy Spirit uses the gospel to break through the blindness of the mind and the blindness of the heart so people can experience God's love. That is such a good scripture. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or that or the satisfaction for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. It's like, hello. It's like, yeah, hey, this is easy. Easy peasy, right? If God's loved us, I ought to love you. Maybe you struggle with loving me. Get over it. (laughs) So that's what I'm telling you tonight. If you don't love me, hey, just get up. You got to love me. You got to love me. I got to love you. If you don't love me, I got to love you. Why? Because, because God, if no one has ever seen God, if we love one another, God abides in us. That's why. It's a demonstration that God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Amen? Amen. So, the gospel teaches us to love. And when the world sees that, when the world sees that, when they see what forgiveness looks like and love looks like, it's attractional. So, Apostle Paul is telling his church at Thessalonica and he's telling us in Homa, Louisiana and wherever else you're from in this region, he's telling us as a church, we need to love one another because when the world looks at who we are and our love for one another, our love for God, our love our love for them, when they see genuine love shed abroad in our heart, it speaks the gospel. It preaches the gospel to people. The gospel teaches us to love. There is a love we have for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, that has its foundation in our common experience of being transformed by the love of Christ. Amen? Amen. So our second point, that's our first point, that that love for one another should be evident. Secondly, our trust in the Lord should be evident. This is an interesting section here. Our trust in the Lord should be evident. So the words Paul uses here are a little, could be a little confusing here but let's see if we can break it down so he says here in this next section he says and to aspire so he tells them to love one another and then he says and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs so what's he trying to say there well when you break down the word there aspire you know what that that means it means to have a, a desire or an ambition right a desire or an ambition so if you aspire to something it means you have ambition for, for whatever you're aspiring for and you're pursuing it so he's telling them uh, pursue have a desire aspire make it an ambition to live quietly and when i studied that word quietly out it doesn't mean like aspire to live like a monk with a vow of silence right he's not it's not actually talking about quiet like not talking like the quiet game like i try to get my kids to play all the time (laughs) it's not talking about that it's talking about a state of mind and speaking more about peace of mind. Aspire, pursue, run after a peaceful life. Live in a state of trusting God. It's talking about a quiet trust in your life in God. 
Speaking about a quiet trust. Aspire. Pursue after this trust in God. Don't let your trust waver in God. And so here's the picture of what he's telling them and he's telling us. There's lots of reasons in our world to be upset, to be worried, to not trust God. We experience many different things that come at us, you know, from all different angles that try to attack our peace, that try to get us to be upset, that try to get us to, 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 to feel like that this world's about to implode. I mean, just you've you got to stay away from the news almost every day or you're going to be depressed about, I mean, our future. I mean, everyone's expecting that we're going to be in a nuclear war any moment now because of Twitter, right? I mean, it's just kind of crazy right now. And so if you, if you allow yourself to be inundated with these thoughts from all these different avenues, social media and the news, maybe you work with somebody that's just a, like a negative negative Nelly, or, or they're just always down and negative and they pull you down, and then you, it just sucks away your peace and your quiet confidence. There's something about a believer that has just this quiet, peaceful confidence that no matter what, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You can't steal my joy. You can't take my peace. Devil, you can't take it. You, individual, you can't take it. That circumstance, you can't take it. I'm trusting in God. And just think about this church in the middle of persecution. How would it have, what would it have looked like to the outside world when the world is persecuting them, ridiculing them, and they're just like, hey, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Hey, I'm going to be in heaven if you kill me. There's just this quiet confidence in the Lord that it doesn't matter. Nothing's going to shake me. I'm not going to allow anything to shake my quiet confidence and trust in the Lord. And I want to encourage you with that. That that is such a demonstration of the of the mercy of God and the grace of God in your life. It demonstrates the power of the gospel that you've been changed. You know, there's so many people that I think that are led by their emotions and, and their feelings, even as Christians. And they allow the circumstances of their life to dictate how they feel and it controls them. They dictate it dictates how they think about circumstances and you know we're called for something different you know it's i'm not saying it's easy not easy whenever you get laid off it's not easy when they cut your pay it's not easy when you get ridiculed for your faith those are i'm not saying those things are easy yeah in this life we will have troubles jesus promised that we're going to have troubles in this life you'll have troubles and difficulties and persecution but he said be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So what, where, where's, who, who is the object of our faith? That's where the quiet confidence comes from. Where's our faith directed? Where's your faith directed? Christ. So when you're looking at the circumstances that you don't like and you don't agree with, your, 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 your eyes are looking there. And so you don't have that quiet confidence and you're in turmoil and your mind's going crazy. You just you have to just push the pause button in those moments. Just stop and just place your faith and your trust. Look up to God. Look up. Put on some worship music. Shake yourself out of it. I've probably said this a dozen times. I have Bose noise canceling headphones. You come sometime during the day, you might see me around the church wearing them. And, and it's symbolic for me as it is physical. When I put those headphones on, 
and I hit the on button, it's like everything around me sucks in and it's gone. And it's like just me and the Lord and I'm listening to worship music. And and it's just like it's it's like a state of it's like it's like a state of mind for me. I'm not trying to get weird on you, <laughs> but but it's just it's just a symbolic thing for me. It's like I'm drowning. I am making a decision to drown out everything, drown out all the noise. And sometimes I'm 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 in here, or I'm in my office, and somebody may walk by or say something, or or, or I don't see them, I don't I, I don't hear them, and so I'm not looking around. And it's just I'm zoning in. That's what you have to do sometimes. Get some spiritual Bose noise-canceling headphones or some physical ones. Put them on your head and just cancel out the noise. Or you will drive yourself to worry, fret, anxiety, stress, heart problems. You're just going to be overwhelmed. You've got to cancel it out. And set your faith and your eyes on who is worthy of your trust. I want to read a section of scripture. It's one of my favorite sections of scripture. If I've prayed with you at the altar, odds are I've quoted a portion of the scripture to some of you here tonight. And you're going to recognize this when I read this section. Matthew chapter 6. Therefore, this is Jesus speaking. This is the object of our faith. This is what he says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about, what, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. <laughs> I love this picture. This is so good. I, I just Let's stop and think about this for a second. So Jesus is, is telling us, he's saying, he says, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about it. Don't be anxious about your life. And then he says, look at the birds. Look at the birds. Look at the flowers. I don't want to look at the birds or the flowers. What am I going to learn from the birds or the flowers? You know, it's like Jesus is so... I love his parables. I love how he teaches us. Don't be anxious. Look at the birds. They neither sow nor reap, reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Animal rights people don't love that scripture <laughs> at all. <laughs> And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If you are anxious right now, and you are worried and overwhelmed with worry and anxiety, that's your life verse right now. Matthew 6, 27. Which of you, by being anxious or worried, can add a single hour to your span of life? Let it go. (laughs) Let it go. Sing the song if you have to. Verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown in the ovens, burned up, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what are we going to do? How are we going to get through this? How's it going to work out? How are we going to pay the bills? Is this going to happen? Is that going to happen? Are they going to do this? Are they going to come through? Don't, 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 don't spend your time asking all the questions. Because you're not going to add a single hour to your day. You're not going to fix it by asking the questions and worrying about it. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we, shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. Your heavenly fathers, he knows your needs. He knows them. Verse 33, 
But what are, what are we to do? The object of our faith is Christ. We're to, we're to look up. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things, all these things that you're worried about, He's going to take care of them. All these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That means that each day, it's got its own trouble. So don't be worrying about tomorrow, because there's enough trouble coming for you. Just set your, the object of your faith, it needs to be up, looking in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen? Aspire to live a quiet life. Our trust in the Lord should be evident. And I'm telling you, in the midst of a crazy world, when you get a believer who their object of their faith is Jesus Christ, and they're walking through incredibly difficult circumstances, cancer diagnosis, loss of a loved one, and a non-believer at your job looks at you, and you're, in your, you're clothed and in your right mind, and you're talking in, in ways of, of, that demonstrate joy and peace and, and and maybe it's not all worked out in your head, but there's just something they sense in you that is peaceful and quiet and, and trusting. Man, that, that preaches the gospel right there. That catches a lot of people. Something's different about you, the way you handled that. Tell me about your God. Tell me about this Jesus. I had, a lot of, I had some other scriptures to read in this section, but um, let's read... Um, yeah, let's just read this, this section here. 1 Peter 3, 14 through 17. But if you should suffer for righteousness, for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So what, what's he saying there? When you're walking in that quiet confidence... You're trusting in the Lord, even in the midst of crazy circumstances. It's because you have a hope. Because your hope is, is that one day this is all going to pass away and I'm going to heaven. And you also have a hope in Jesus Christ. He's going to take care of your life right now. And so that's, that's a hope that you have. So always be ready to give a reason for the hope you have in you. That's what we're called to do. Always be ready, armed with the truth, to tell them why you have that hope. Why? Why, why, why is that? It's a a simple answer. Because I've been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I once was lost. I once was dead. I once was spiritually blind, bound by sin. But now I've been made alive in Jesus Christ. I've been born again. I've changed. I'm a new creation. This is why I have hope in the afterlife. This is why I have hope for eternity. And this is why I have hope right now. It's because I have a peace that the world does not offer. Amen? Amen. Okay, so let's move on. This next section here. So the first two, we, we, we demonstrate to the world what the gospel looks like by how we love one another and how we walk in a trust and a confidence in God's faithfulness. And then the third thing I see that we need to, to focus on as Christians is that our godly work ethic should be evident. So now we're going to walk on some toes here. I'll step on some toes. Our godly work ethic should be evident. So this is an interesting section here. Let's go back to the text. It says, so after he talked about um, that quiet confidence, he says, and to work, he continues, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, 
so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So what, what's going on there? What's happening in this church? Well, in this Greek culture, manual labor was frowned upon in that culture. But intellectual labor, labor work of the mind, was something that was esteemed and valued. And so he was telling them that, hey, you need to work with your hands. You need to work hard, be diligent, take care of yourself. And some of the audience that he had there would have been, would have been slaves. You know, that, that was the work environment there where you, there was masters and slaves. But it wasn't typical like you would think of slavery in our context, in our modern times. Everyone, it, it was some type of master-slave system. It, it, it's better pictured employer, employer and employee. And some of you feel like you're a slave to your job, right? But that's kind of like what the system was. And so some of them, some, some of them were just not working. They weren't working at all. Because why? Because they're thinking Jesus is coming back tomorrow. So I'm just not going to work. It really doesn't matter. Hey, it's kind of like Jesus is coming back. Let's just let everything go. We don't have to worry about our life, how we live. We don't have to worry about any of those things. And he's addressing those issues. And he even gets down to the issue of their work. And he says, look, you need to work with your hands. You need to be diligent. While you're living amongst outsiders, you need to be careful to work, to be diligent. And so how we work is important. So the principle for us is that work is important. And how we work is important. It's important. It is a demonstration to the world that we're different. We work different. We handle our responsibilities different. You know, we, we are called to go the extra mile. We're called to be the best employees that all of our businesses have. That's, I mean, that's hard. That's, that's, I mean, that's hard for me to hear. I, I mean, I, I remember, look, I remember the days when I worked at Safeguard. This is before I, I, I came on full-time staff at the church. I worked about nine years running alarm system wires uh, in people's attics throughout the year, but specifically in the summer. I don't know why anybody would ever want to get an alarm system in the summer. I mean, don't you know what we have to do <laughs> to put an alarm system in? Uh, and, I, you know, I, I, my goal was to do what I just said. I want to be the best employee that my company has because I'm a Christian. And I want to honor God by my work ethic. But it was hard. It's hard whenever your work is difficult. It's hard whenever you might have a, a difficult boss. You know, I, I, I was kind of like the new install guy for the existing homes. You had some guys that would do the new construction, and I, I would do some of those. But I would do a lot of the existing homes where there's insulation all over the place and it's small attics. I did tons of homes in Summerfield uh, in those older homes and these small attics. And I'm up there and I'm like, oh, dear Jesus, help me. And my boss would send new helpers who didn't know anything, didn't know up from down about alarm systems. And, 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 and I'm having to drill the holes down in the house in the window frames to send up a fish tape to get the wires. But I'm having to do that and run the wires. And I'm just frustrated because my boss, sometimes we have bosses that just don't help you out. And they do things that aren't right, like sending you two helpers that don't know anything. And I'd be frustrated and tempted to not be the best employee. And so I know it's not easy, but that's what we're called to. We're called to be the best employees for every business that we work for because it speaks something. When, the, when, when your boss wants to get the job done right, who's he going to call? The one that gets it done, right? And you want that to be you. Not just so you can get the money. 
and get the promotion and the pay raise, but that so ultimately, because your boss knows that you're a Christian, it can witness and speak to him. Man, that I gotta hire I gotta hire me some more Christians. Because these Christians, man, wouldn't it be terrible if a company's like, I don't want to hire any Christians? Because every Christian I've hired, they're lazy and they're no good and they sit on the clock and do nothing. That would not be good, right? And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. This is, this is what I think it, what we need to hear, that we are called to work. Work is from God. Work is, work is from God. Bob Black, I never really heard of him until this afternoon. He wrote an essay back in 1985 and he entitled it The Abolition of Work. And this is what he said. No one should ever work. Work is the source of nearly all the misery of the world. He must have had a bad, bad employer. Almost any evil you'd care to name comes from working or from living in a world designed for work. In order to stop suffering, we have to stop working. <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> I wonder how he made a living. A poor guy, right? And so sometimes you think, man, maybe maybe work is because of the curse. That's got to be it. Sometimes when I was in the attic in August, I'm thinking, Adam, what is wrong with you? Why did you do this? This sweating by, the, by my brow is because of you. You messed this up for me. I wouldn't have to be sweating if it wasn't for you, right? Sometimes we think, well, all work must be from the curse. Well, let's read the curse here. This is after Adam and Eve had sinned. Genesis 3, 17 through 19 says, And to the man... It says, after a man sinned and rebelled against God, God said, since you listened to your wife, Adam, and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. Now, some, now men, we can't take this out of context. We can't say, we can't just start, you know, trying try to throw women out because of this. We can't start blaming women. Uh, but he says, because you did not obey my voice, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Isn't that depressing? (laughs) It's like, my goodness, right? So sometimes we can think work is from the curse. Work's not from the curse. Where's work from? Who created work? Let's look at where work was created. Work was created from God. Genesis 2, 1 through 3 and 15. This is the conclusion of the work of God in creation. He worked for six days. He made all of the world and the heavens and the stars and the fish and the land animals. He made everything. And this is the end of it. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished. And all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His Work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Then verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden Eden to work it and keep it. The first worker, the one who created work was God. And then God made Adam to work. So whatever work looked like from Genesis 2.15, when Adam worked the Garden of Eden and kept it until and worked the ground, he wasn't sweating. It wasn't like our experience of work. What would that have been like? Let's think about that for a second. What would work be like? You didn't get tired? What was that like? Right? 
I mean, you're not tired. You can go on. How did, how did Adam work the garden? What did that look like? No, no time, not being tired, not sweating. It wasn't a burden. And then he sinned and he fell and then he sweated and he got tired and he had a lifespan. He, he came from the dust and he didn't end up in the dust. And so God's the one who created work. And when God finished all of his work, what did he say about it? He said it was good. He's the one that said not only did he create work, but he said work was good. His work was good. Work is good. God designed us to work. The Christian attitude about work should, should mirror that of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus said in John 4, starting in 31. This is after his uh, conversation with the woman at the well. He says, after he had that conversation, the disciples came and found him. This, and they were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. We need to eat. You've been working. You need to eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has someone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's the lens with which we should see our work. You may not like to hear what I'm about to say, but it's true. God has called you to your job. The job you are currently on is God's calling for your life. You're like, wait a minute. I'm thinking about going somewhere else. Well, that may happen. And that may be what God calls you to do. But the job you have right now is your calling. The work that you're doing right now that you may not like, God called you to do it. That's the lens with which you should see it. That God's put a work, a work, a calling in front of me. And I'm going to work to please him. I'm going to do his work, his calling, where he's placed me. I'm going to honor him with what he's placed in front of me to do. Because God's going to, God will bless the work of your hands when you honor him in that work. And so I just want to encourage you, that especially you that are in jobs that you don't like, that you're frustrated with, work at it with all of your heart. Be diligent and work as unto the Lord, Scripture says. And God will give you joy in that job. You may be at the end of your rope with your job, with your job end of your rope with your boss. They've been treating you wrongly. God will take care of you. Set your hope and your affection. Your object of your faith is Jesus Christ. Look up and work hard. Look up and work hard. Amen? So we're called to work. So these three areas, and that, 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 that's basically the heart of what the Apostle Paul is saying here, that the way we live in the midst of the onlooking world matters. How we love each other, our quiet confidence in, in the Lord, and even the way we work, even the way we handle work, everything we do as believers sends a message to the world about what we believe about God. This is a commentary from uh, Mark Howell. Uh, first on, on, on this section of scripture here. Everything we do as believers sends a message to the world about what we believe about God. From our words to our work, we are accountable to God for how we live. If our faith is real on Sunday at church, then it will be, it will be just as real on Monday in the office. Everything that we do speaks about who we are and what we believe. Our love, our trust, and our work our love, our trust, and our work all send a message to those around us, to our co-workers, to our family, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. These three areas make up so much of who we are in our everyday life. Think about that. How much of our life is made up about how we love each other? How much of our life is made up with our work? I spend more time at work than I do with my family, right? And a lot of you do too. So much of who we are 
is how we love, how we work, and how we trust. It makes up a lot of who we are. And so because of that, let's pray. Won't you stand with me? Let's pray that God would help us to excel more and more by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I just pray for all of us, God, for myself and all, all of us here, God, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that you'd help us, first of all, to love one another, to be the embodiment, to be an, a, a demonstration, the embodiment of love to, to, to each other. And, and to the outside world, let us demonstrate what love looks like, what forgiveness looks like. God, you have shown your love in our hearts and it's transformed us. And Lord, may we be conduits of that love to everyone that we see. And God, also, Lord, secondly, I pray that you would help us in the area of our trust. Lord, let us have a quiet confidence, live in a quiet confidence that we just trust you, no matter what comes, no matter the winds and the waves of this life that beat upon our life. God, may we just live with a sense of trust in you that you are good, you are God, and you are worthy of our trust. And finally, God, Help, help us with our work. And I pray for everyone here that you would help them on their job. Bless the work of their hands. Help them, God, to be diligent, to be faithful, to honor you with their work. And God, let it be a demonstration to their employer of who you are and what you do in the lives of Christians, that you change them, that, they're, that, that Christians are different. God, may we be examples to this world in every area of our life of what the power of the gospel looks like. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. You are, you, you are dismissed.